welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Reggie Godino. Dr. Reggie Godino is a molecular geneticist focused on biochemical networks in plant phytochemistry. Dr. Godino's career has covered intellectual property, cannabis testing development, and cannabis breeding. As the VP of R&D at Front Range Biosciences, he leads sophisticated breeding programs for hemp and cannabis directed by multidisciplinary scientific support. Today, we'll be talking plant genetics and breeding with Dr. Godino to understand some of the challenges, successes, and perhaps where it should be heading in the future. Let's jump right in and expand our Noid knowledge. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we usually like to start our episodes with some background and context for the listeners. So can you share your cannabis origin story with us? Oh, my cannabis origin story. Um, it's its one of those typical ones. I was 13 years old. Um, it, was, it seemed like the thing to do at the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, peer pressure. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, it was... Uh, and then I actually, I do have a, a fairly interesting um, uh, story from, from my youth was, so um, one of the, not the first time, but but one of the early times that I, I consumed cannabis when I was probably at 14 years old at this time was with actually with, with a, a couple of Hasidic uh, kids who are, who lived in my neighborhood. I, I grew up in Muncie, New York, which was the, at the time was the largest Hasidim in, in the world. And um and I was uh, at, at at the local tennis courts uh, um, in in Muncie, and I'm walking home from the tennis courts, and I hear a, psst, hey, psst, right? I look around, and and you know, next thing I knew, I uh, I'm I'm actually consuming cannabis with with two Hasidic kids, so it was very interesting. <laughs> was one of them modest Yahoo? <laughs> if it had been, I would have been like in, in heaven, right? So uh, I, I love modesty. I hope by the way. So um, um, no, so so that that's an interesting thing. Um, and then after that, I didn't have uh, much to do with cannabis until I got to college, and then all hell broke loose. Um, <laughs> I lived in the I lived in the drug house. We had one of my roommates was was a weed dealer. One was a coke dealer. And one was a was an, a, an LSD and and. Um, and Quailu dealer. So like I went I went from being a relatively uh sheltered kid to having all hell break loose. Um and and that was really when I kind of um started really getting into cannabis and shortly thereafter um entered the graduate school program at University of Buffalo to get my PhD and and I found myself with um Bob Gibbons who um who went on to become my initial lab director at, at Steep Hill Labs. Um, and, uh, and he and I were the only two black kids in the PhD program, actually in the, uh, the biology program at University of Buffalo. In fact, we, we were the first two, uh, black, um, graduates with molecular genetics degrees in the United States. Um, wow, and, that's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, that's a long time ago. And, um, um, it was with Bob that I really rekindled my, my, interest and involvement with cannabis and went on to uh, we we had one of the probably the first hydroponic grows in all of buffalo new york at the time this was back in 
when Operation Green Merchant was still going on is because we had to take cash and drive to um, 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 Erie, Pennsylvania um, to go to a hydroponic shop to get our equipment and pay cash so that we wouldn't be on some list in New York, right? So, mm-hmm. so, that, so, so uh, yeah, no, so, so it goes back a long time. And, and um, um, but it wasn't until, um, I think my real formative story was um, one of transformation, right? So I, so I left, um, you know, biotech and I came into the industry um, in 2014. And um, I actually was one of those people who came in for, to, the, to the industry for the wrong reasons. I thought I was going to, you know, bring science and get rich quick and, you know, and, and, uh, and live, live, live like a rock star. And uh, as within a month of me taking my job at Steep Hill, my dad had a stroke. Um, mm. Gosh, I'm so sorry. And, and um, it was one of those things where... Um, I was in the, it's a, it's a story I'll never forget. I was actually uh, in a middle of a, of a site tour with Shimadzu, the company that I'm associated with now. And they were, I had brought them in to try to, to, to um, get a, a collaboration and better pricing on equipment. We were currently using Agilent equipment at the time. And so we were going to switch over to Shimadzu equipment. Um, and my mom called me to tell me about my dad's stroke in the middle of that site visit. And like the guy who went on to become a very good friend, friend of mine, Will Bankert um, at Shimazu, um, looked at me. He could probably see that my face had just turned white, like I had seen a ghost or whatever, right? And mm-hmm. uh, um, and what ended up happening was is that he said, "Hey, I know somebody who can help you, right?" Um, and he made a phone call, uh, and then like an hour and a half later, so another person called me back and said, "Hey, Will called me and said you need my help." What can I do for you? Um, and that was where I met Ken Kobosh of GI Grow, and and he's been the one who's been a, who helped me get my dad on a CBD oil at that, and and then we went on to try other things like CBG, and we we, we use a, a bunch of different um, cannabinoids, and but but my dad went from, you know, definitely had a, a better quality of life, and and right now I have him on uh, still because of of that start, I had still have my dad on like. 250 milligrams of CBG a day and 150 milligrams of CBD a day. And he went from having kind of like, you know, the paralysis on the left side with the kind of claw hand that you get sometimes when you, when you yeah. have a, a stroke, he can use his left hand. He can, you know, he, he, oh my you know, God, he's not, it's not a hundred percent better, but it's definitely better than, than before. Right. So, um, and so it was at that point that I completely realized that I had come to the cannabis industry for the wrong reasons. And the lesson that I learned on that day was, is that, you know, the only right way to do cannabis is to do it for the plant and for the people. So, so that, 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 that was my cannabis story. I, it's a beautiful takeaway. Yeah, um, it is. And I, it, the, the medicinal applications we always end up coming back to because the, power as a therapeutic is so stark i mean like yeah everybody can take cbd for some reason but when you see it used like to treat a condition acutely it's it's mind-blowing yeah Uh, and 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 i can see when i run out of cbg and and my mom can tell me she tells me i can see behavioral differences right like he's not as sharp focused his attention span isn't there he suddenly can't 
use the right arm as much as you know the left arm as yeah. much anymore the hand goes back to, to not being able to open as easily um you know yeah so, so it's definitely you know it's definitely about more than getting high for sure right and, <laughs> for, and for sure and we've spent a long time trying to dig out from the hole that we were put in by prohibition right and and we're we're really behind the eight ball on what we could be doing with this plant because of all that bullshit so yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Did you guys face any of that stigma when you tried to give your dad the cannabinoids, like by his well, doctors or anyone else? Well, it's funny because my mom, who's a nurse, and so my dad's an MD, by the way. So my dad's a cancer surgeon, right? So, so this this was really ironic. So my so my, my dad realized that I was smoking pot. I was almost disowned. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I literally no, I, like like I was almost like you know I talk about the black sheep of the family, right? So. Um, and um and it's funny though because now i joke with my dad i'm like see see like now <laughs> now i got you on it and it's helping you and, you know and he kind of took all the fun out of it because he said well you can't blame me because all i knew was what they taught us in medical school right yeah and so i was like you know fuck it dad you just ruined the whole thing i'm trying to poke fun at you and you just <laughs> That's so but, so. But, but, uh, but, but my mom and dad, uh, so my mom, who's his primary caregiver, really, um, is afraid to tell the doctors. She tells, you know, we have at home, you know, in-house help that she, that know. Um, a few of, a few of his closer doctor friends now know. Um, the physical therapists know because they can, they can tell, they can see mm-hmm. the difference. Like if he, if he's, if I run out and, uh, and the oil's late getting there and he doesn't have it for a couple of weeks, they can notice a regression in his progress that then they have to work back up again. Mm-hmm. So, so some people are knowing it or know it, but like his primary doctors really still don't know. Cause my mom's, my mom is afraid to tell them. So, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I don't, I don't really blame her though. I mean, I get it. It's it's tough. Yeah. Well, right, because I mean, uh, may, maybe there are some very, very fresh baby doctors that have learned about the endocannabinoid system in school, but anybody older than than that, uh, you know, that was not part of their education, yeah. right? The, the only education they received on cannabis was about uh, abuse potential. That's it. And, and it's funny, I was just reading an article today how there was a 2020 review uh, on on cannabis and and it was again focused on the harms right the harms of yeah. CBD and on the you know it's like... it, yeah I think I was reading something like this and they were talking about you know the the liver toxicity issues with CBD and it's just I, that I find really funny because that data is so skewed all all the safety data they have on CBD comes from the studies for Epidiolex, which, I mean, you, you look at the profile of other medications those kids are on, they all have liver toxicity as an issue. So like, how can you accurately measure the liver toxicity of, of the cannabinoids if you're directly competing with these other drugs in the system? Well, you know, what, and what, what, yeah, you have to look at it from the, the perspective of the whole data, right? So, so there there was clearly um, a, a, in a number of cases, right? So in that in that study, so the, the take home point from that study is is that you know first of all they're using fairly high doses, right? They're they're using like two thousand milligrams or right. something like that, right? And and so in that case, right? So you, you you would not you would not 
expect there to be no effect, right? Like if you take that much of anything, right, every day. Um, but the important thing was is that in almost every case, as soon as they stopped taking it, it's condition reversed, right? So they yep. saw the elevated liver with their enzymes and they saw these things. And within days of stopping, it went away. That doesn't happen with the other drugs. So that's what we have to be looking at. The other drugs these kids are taking that cause liver toxicity, it doesn't go away almost immediately, right? So so I, I think that's where you have to, to really take a look at the data and, and try to parse it, right? But, you know, for us to think that there's going to be no contraindications for cannabis is, is it would be, you know, foolish. Right? So there's, yeah, there's going to be so, some effect, right? So, um, but again, I think the important comparison is, is, is what is that effect? And is that effect less than the effects of other pharmaceutical drugs, right? And what are the, the downstream ramifications, right? So, you know, you, you end up with, with generally with pharmaceutical drugs, you have to take, you take a pill for this. And then because you get the side effect, now you got to take a pill for this yep. and then, right. This, and then you, you end up on 17 medications, right? Well, with cannabis, right. So you, it's, it's the, the job of cannabis through the endocannabinoid system, right. Or the endocannabinoid system, right. Is, is to keep homeostasis, right. So to keep everything in check, right. So if you're using something that plays in, in the system to keep things in, in, in balance, right. Well then, Inherently, that looks to me like it's going to be a better long-term solution than these other drugs where you have that seventeen drugs, or, you know, um, you know, to 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 get back to where you were before you started the first, right? So, yeah, I, I, it, there's there's so many questions that come up when you're when you're down that path of uh, uh, of polypharmacy. And it's funny, right? Because the, the studies in the pharmaceutical industry, they're really focused on single molecule uh, treatments, right? Yeah. But then you start looking at these conditions and everybody's on, uh, or most people with with serious conditions, they have a polypharmacy approach. They're, they're on multiple medications, which most of the time aren't really studied together. I mean, the doctors prescribing them have the yeah. experience, but that's not, that's not peer reviewed research. <laughs> no, so. I, I agree hundred percent. So, you know, and it's funny because uh, you know, I, I sit on the, on the organization called US, USCFCR, which is the United States council for cannabis regulation. Right? And it's basically a, an, a, a conglomeration of, uh, policy people, formerly, you know, we have a USDA, a former USDA person, um, you know, some other people who have been in, involved in government policy for quite some time, in, in, the, in FDA and that kind of thing. And um, and it's it's a, a, a member organization with a number of, um, you know, um, MSOs and, and other, you know, uh, various aspects of the, of the industry. Um and and what we what we recently were discussing is is that how cannabis is literally held to a completely different standard <laughs> than every other drug. And I was like, wait a second, are you serious? Why hasn't somebody started a lawsuit based on that? Like, how can they have a set of rules that have to be followed for certain drugs, but then you know, uh, or or certain rules and policies, but then they can take cannabis and say, nope. That doesn't apply. You can't. You don't fit in there, right? So, why? How? Right? So that seems to me like it's it's a, a class action suit waiting to happen, right? So, um, but I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. So, yeah, 
you know, and and of course the problem is is that uh, when the lawyers get involved, nobody makes any money anymore. Except for lawyers. <laughs> Except for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So right. so so let let's let's move on into the meat. Um, how about the basics of plant genetics? What what kind of really commonly found mistakes do you see people making in their in their thinking when it comes to understanding what you're presenting in in terms of the findings of your own research or or the general findings of research in uh, on this plant and its compounds um so i think um <laughs> One of the common threads that I see um, coming out of some academic research these days is, is that the people doing the academic research don't understand the plant and, and don't and have never really grown the plant. Right? So I, I see some papers where I'm like, dude, you would never do, you would never grow a plant like that. You'd never grow cannabis like that. Why would you even do that? Um, <laughs> or, or not understanding um, the incredible amount of adaptation built into this plant, right? Because of its... Uh, genetic diversity. We were talking about that before, right? So it's an incredibly genetic, genetically diverse plant. Um, and so an example, and, and I'm not trying to badmouth anybody or, or bash any research, right? But but one that comes to mind is is a paper that was done by Larry Smart, where um, the conclusion was, is that environmental stress doesn't really have a change on, on whether or not plants, you know, are CBD rich or not. Uh, and the way they went about this was to take um, a couple of varieties, most of which had been developed in the Pacific Northwest, okay, which is typically so, so what? commercial varieties then. Yes, right. The commercial varieties. Ty right? Ty type one heavy commercial yeah, varieties. I, I, no, no. So, so these were actually type three because okay. it, it, was, it was done at Cornell and so it's a CBD. Yeah. They have to do work with CBD, right? So, so but, but still, it was still a commercial CBD variety, right, that was you know, bred and, and developed in the Pacific Northwest. And so they looked at water stress on the plant. They, they gave it 5% more water, maybe 10% more water than the addition, than, than the car, <laughs> corresponding plants. And then, they, and then they said, oh, look, there wasn't a change. And so nothing major changed and it didn't affect how hot it went or how fast it went hot. Well, that's there. The basic understanding is as well. A plant bred in the Pacific Northwest is going to have a higher tolerance for water anyway. Right. And so, and they did they did one one type of water stress. They didn't vary it with you know five percent, ten percent, twenty five percent. They did one type of water stress, one <laughs> percentage over it. What are you proving there? You're, you're showing you're not, and that and that to me speaks to a, a basic lack of of understanding of the plant in its natural environment and 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 the diversity that's inherent in the plant, right? So so now we have similar data where we we looked at you know the same type of CBD plants in 25 different locations with hurricanes mm -hmm. and monsoons and all this other stuff. And how and, about drought, right? And, like, and drought, like they right, only did right. positive stress. Right. What about negative stress? Exactly, like, Oxnard, California, right? And so our 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 findings overall supported theirs. And that, in, in that, that environmental stress, even severe stress, right, doesn't change whether you're a CBD dominant plant or, a, you know, you know, 
you, you won't go from a CB dominant, you know, genetic to making THC dominant, right? But what it will do is it'll change the ratio, the CBD to THC mm-hmm. ratio, which does affect how it goes hot. So, so they didn't go far enough in the paper because basically they they made everybody really oh it doesn't matter you won't you won't have a problem nothing will change but things do change right and so it doesn't change from a type three to a type one or a type two but what it does do is it changes when you have to harvest that fucker so it doesn't go hot and you it, and you lose your entire crop right yeah. right and so I think like, I, I, I right because I mean the the various epigenetic inputs the the environmental stressors are going to contribute to enzyme activity right or, or production of, of those synthase enzymes uh, and that's how it's changing the the ratio right like to, to not to dive into this right so basically each of the cannabinoid synthases has their upstream untranslated regions which are full of dna binding re, you know um motifs that attract transcription factors right now mm-hmm. stress is a thing and plants respond to stress by causing you know, things to be expressed, transcription factors to come on that will then allow it to express the things that will help it under that particular stress, right? So so cannabinoid synthases are no different. And depending on the stress, you know, you may have THC be turned on more than it would have been in other non-stressful conditions, right? So, so you know, the the environment still plays into it, right? And it still does change that expression pattern of the genes, the question is, is, is what is the extent of that change, right? And so, you know, what we've seen is, is that, yeah, you know, most plants have a 24 to 28 to 1. You some, sometimes you find 30 to 1, you find a few, you know, isolated varieties that'll go 33 to 1 CBD to THC, right? What that basically means at 30 to 1 is that by 9% CBD, you're going hot, right? That's basically what it means, mm-hmm. right? So um, the problem becomes that is that if you have drought or you have over you know, water stress, or you have hurricanes or stuff like that, what you end up seeing is that that 30 to one ratio will drop 24 to one, 22 to one, 20 to one, right? And so now you're at 6% and going hot, right? So, so, um, right. So, so I, I think, you know, what has to happen is that the people doing the research have to understand the plant more and how it plays into the overall business in the industry, right? So by telling people, oh, stress doesn't cause a problem, you're, you're misinforming people because stress does cause a problem if you're looking to harvest before it goes hot. It could mm-hmm. completely change when that CBD plant goes hot, you know, and, and, and be the difference between you having a successful crop and you being slapped on the hand by the USDA and the local authorities, right? So, um, you know, and, and so that's just one example, right? So, so other things that you know, I, I I find that people don't understand is the again, it's a lack of understanding of the plant and what it does and how it lives, right? So, um, people, you know, put the the drive for THC, right? And you know, and everybody's wants that higher THC number, and you know, it's hard for a plant to get above thirty percent THC. Think about that. You know, almost one third of its dry mass, one third of all of its energy is being put into making this compound, right? So if you keep trying to push that higher, you have to lose somewhere else because a plant has a closed loop system. You have sun and nutrients that go in. That's the energy. And you have a product that comes out and that's leaves, plants, flowers, sorry, leaves, roots, flowers, stems, right? Um, So, you know, 
all of that has to come from the same bucket of energy and nutrients that go into the plant, right? So now if you keep pushing for one thing, THC, you are bound to lose elsewhere. And then it's most apparent in the fact that THC, CBD, CBC, right, CBG are all made from the same precursor, right, as terpenes, right, or at least monoterpenes, right, the GPP, right. So if you're forcing more THC at the and you're using the bottleneck precursor GPP to make that THC, what has to give? Well, monoterpenes, right, because if you're forcing it all into THC, unless you find a way to re-engineer that plant so that you have more GPP being made overall, Something has to give, right? And I think that a lot of people fail to realize the connectedness of the of the biochemical pathways in the plant because it's not like we're just this is an isolated thing, right? THC is a is li- essentially a, a is a lipid. It's a it's a fat, right? It's it comes from the same pathway of fatty acid synthesis and lipid synthesis, right? So again, right there there are there are checks and balances in in any organism where you have to have things being made in a way that, that promotes the overall health and balance of that plant right so and so you know uh, everybody keeps chasing um the higher numbers and you're going to get to a, a, an effective plateau and i think we might be there 30 30 33 percent you know and then you know and anytime you see that 37 percent of the 30 42 percent <laughs> thc you, you got to start wondering okay so what lab are you using and let me use that lab too, because I want my numbers to be higher too, right? So, um, or 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 is that lab, you know, letting you throw a fistful of keef in that bag with the with the flour? Say so sampling is is of course super super important, and I'm not quite sure that the regulatory bodies fully understand all of its implications. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because. Um, what, so when I was at Steep Hill, we were heavily involved with the BCC, which is now the DCC, um, and trying to get them to understand exactly that. Hey, guess what? You, the plant is not the same from the top to the bottom (laughs) at the top where the lights are. It tests way higher than at the bottom where the lights are not. (laughs) So, you know, you you can have, you can have literally a 25% difference from the top to the bottom of the plant. You could be hitting 22, 25% of the top. And, and not get above 18% at the bottom, right? Like, so how do you have consistency there, right? Like, you know, so who who gets to call where the sample comes from? Well, in the very beginning of the industry, remember, it was cherry picking. The people yes. were sending in their own samples. So they were always taking the top part of the top cola. And that was the COA they got for all 100 pounds. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we're we're talking here. the The one plant isn't the same from the top to the bottom. Now you're talking fifty pounds. Well, I mean, the most impressive grower I've ever met can get about five pounds off of a plant, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's they, a big plant, dude. That's, that's a, a big, big plant. That's a big plant. That's that that still means that in the current standard in California, it's it's one gram per fifty pounds, I believe. Uh, so well, I, well, so I think the way, so, so I don't know about other places, but California. So what they've done is they've actually done something that tried to cover that. And they did, they call, they call representative sampling and you had to have 
um, X amount taken per, you know, it was a percentage of the batch size. And mm-hmm. then there had to be uh, a, a number of samples taken from different parts. And so what you had to do is you had to take, you know, a bag of weed and you had to dump it out on a big tray. And then you had to take sample from that part, from this part, from that part, from this part, right? And then homogenize it all. And homogenize it all. But then what ends up happening is, is that after you've done that, you've got like, you know, 25 or 50 grams that you've homogenized. You, you're right. You're still taking one gram, <laughs> right? And so oh what is that? What is that? That's, that's given you a very, you know, it, it's given you a better overall representation and it brings down that ridiculously high top number, right? But, um, but it, it causes problems in other aspects, right? So it actually gives you probably a better a, a representation of the overall chemical nature of the plant. But then what it does is it's completely hides the microbial contaminants, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. So, or, or, or um, what it does is it, it, it now distributes the microbial contaminants over a larger batch and maybe potentially fails something, something that, that had a minor right exactly right or- exactly right so so, I, so it, 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 but the question then becomes is is how do you do it correctly without breaking the bank right yeah I, so. it's it's really interesting um susan audino presented a talk at some point this year she's awesome talk, she's fantastic awesome. Yeah. and and she spent a good chunk of time talking about sampling statistics and like what a representative sample means in terms of doing the math and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and she had some great visuals like, uh, you know, pencil erasers and like grinding up your pencil erasers. And then what you need, it just like the steps that could be taken to at least start addressing this problem. Right. But it seems like, you know, the regulators are just like, we need testing this is a number that we were familiar with. Let's make sure that this goes on the box. And it's just uh, problems with the homogenization again. Well, you're not necessarily going to get the same terpene expression throughout the whole batch. And in some states, they require terpenes on the label, be it two, three, 16, whatever arbitrary number is selected. Right. Uh, It's just... uh, you know, it seems like there are more problems than answers. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it was funny because um, yesterday I was reading, um, I forget where I saw it, but um, it, was, it was regular news. It was, But, you know, University of San Diego got all sorts of millions and millions of dollars to be to set up the state's, you know, reference testing lab. And they've missed every deadline. They're <laughs> over budget and they still don't have it working. Right? But everybody thought this was going to be easy, right? Nobody yeah. listened. Nobody listened when we tried to say, no, you guys don't know what you're talking about. We've been doing this for 10 years, and it's not what you think. <laughs> but hey. And I, I think that's even funnier, right? Because, like, they, the state said, okay, let's take it from pure private industry and give it to these university scientists that we know and fund and everything. And what happened the university scientists were like there are all these problems that we have to work out answers to before we can just start a a golden master lab <laughs> but, but these are all the the problems that the better cannabis labs sc steep hill at the time they're no longer but 
Um, you know, so there, there, there were, these are problems that the better cannabis labs had already worked out and figured out and tried to advise, uh, <laughs> believe it, the, the, the state on, and hey, go figure. Yeah. So anyway, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyway, so back, back to genetics. Um, and so the other thing that I find incredibly disheartening is, is the fact that, um, the cannabis industry kind of looks at itself separate from agriculture, right? So, uh, which boggles my mind because it's a plant and you grow a plant. And if you grow a plant in, in, in a large capacity, that's called farming, <laughs> which is part of agriculture. Um, and so, you know, here we, you know, between, we, we, we exist between a rock and a hard place, you know, for lack of a better analogy. And, and that, that's because, you know, here we are, we understand that people want consistency. So what do we do? We use clones, right? Well, but clones are difficult, they're expensive. And if you look at large scale ag, there are very, very, very few large scale agricultural endeavors that start from clone, right? So what we've never done is we've never really spent a lot of time um, breeding inbred lines that have Lot, traits locked in from successive rounds of breeding and selection and, 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 and you know, um, you know ki kind of typical agriculture or animal husbandry, right? The kind of things where you improve the breed through, through selective breeding, right? So, and so, um, and so because of this, right, we, we've actually helped some of the worst nightmares occur, right? So we now have HPLVD, which is the HIV of, of cannabis, right? And stuff like that only happens when you monocrop, right? So if you look at, at right, so when you look at other uh, farming industries like the white peach, well, hey, you guys, do you even remember that there that the United States used to be the largest white peach white peach producer in the world? It's hardly made here anymore, right? Because a lot because all of the white peach trees were were clones, clones. right? Uh, and, it's, it's like the story of bananas, right? Yeah. The bananas we eat today are not the same bananas from yeah. the sixties and seventies, yeah. and they're and they're at risk of the of uh, of another collapse disease. I think banana yeah. trees are are rapidly collapsing yeah. again. Right. And and so, are we on track to see that with cannabis? You think if, it, if it's not changed? Well, I think we're already seeing that, right? So we have HPLVD, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we have the cryptic cannabis virus, the CCV, right? Um, and so, and nobody knows really if those things are independent or they work together. Right. So, but what, but what we've seen in our hands is that, you know, we've had, you know, cause we developed, um, a while ago, we developed our own HPLV tests. So, uh, we, we had seen that, wow, we have plants, we have, and it's, it, it was an amazing thing. The thing was just unaffected big stinky buds, lots of yield. And it was tested as positive as anything else for HPLVD. It just didn't care, right? And so we're trying to figure out, well, why the fuck is that? <laughs> why, why, why do you not care? Why does all the other plants around you care, but you, your particular variety does not care, right? What is it about that plant? Is it a genetic mutation? Is it an expression of certain terpenes or other things? We're still, we're still trying to work on that, right? But, it's, but I think- is, is it just latency and being outside? I mean, there's, maybe. there's a decent- theory that HPLVD uh, mode of action, uh, for lack of a better word, it, it interferes with um, energy transport. And so the outdoor plants 
handle it much better than indoor because they're getting, you know, as much as many photons as come from the sun as possible. And so energy, uh, the, the limiting of the energy pathways isn't nearly as impactful interesting. Uh, as indoor. No, that's interesting. Um, I would say, um, it's a theory. The, <laughs> no, it, it's potential. I mean, at this point, until you figure it out, everything's, you have to consider everything. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, in our hands, the, the plants that I was referring to were, were uh, all cultivated indoors. Right. So, um, okay. and, and, and then I, ironically, when I, when I brought it outdoors, um, it, it started to show more severe symptoms. Right. But at that point, we had, we it was literally it, it was like three years old. We had like literally it, it, the plant was three years old. You know, we kept cloning it because um, we kept, uh, we needed it. I'm like, yeah, study right. it. Right. So and, <laughs> of course. And, and so finally, it got to the point where the, the new, new cuttings wouldn't root or they took really, really long time. through. And so you could start to see it, it eventually started to, to decline. Right. And um, and so one of the things that we thought about was, well, maybe it's a viral load thing. So, or viroid yeah. load thing, you know? So, so, and, and in some plants, maybe if they have the right genetics or the right terpenes or whatever, right. Which would be related to genetics. Um, you know, it, it, they can tolerate it to a point. It can, it can tolerate it maybe because the, the replication of the viroid is slower. Right. And so, yeah. but you know, it's, it's hard to do that kind of, you know, viral load studies. Um, you know, uh, it's an it, RNA virus. It, it, it depending it, on where you sample, it's different, and you know. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, but, it's, um, I, I, it's it's a tricky little pest. It's it's yeah. a very tiny, yeah. tiny organism too. Two hundred and fifty six bases, baby. <laughs> That's it, right? Um, but you know, and, and so the question then becomes is is well, how does it do this devastation, right? So is it you know, um, and and how do you how do you deal with it? How, how do you go forward in the industry? Well, one way to do it is seed, right? So to get away from clones, right? And so yeah. suddenly your the mechanical mechanical mode of transmission is gone. You're not serially passing it on. And and even if you get it in a plant, even if there's a, an insect uh, an insect um, host, right, or 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 transmission, you know, kind of route, you know, if it bites into a plant that was started from seed. Even if you breed with it, right, it's not going to have enough time to affect your crop, yep. right? And it's already been shown that but breeding is one of the best ways to get rid of HPLVD because there are RNases in the process of making pollen that end up destroying HPLVD RNA, right? So makes sense. So right. So so here we here we have the answer, which is the traditional route of farming. <laughs> go, go back to seed, right? So, um, so, so those are some of the things that I find uh, I find most disheartening and or difficult about the cannabis industry, right? So, I uh, really, you know, um, it's it's, and, and I'm not trying to take away from the guys who have done great things and made great varieties and 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 have done all the hard work to 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 get us where we are today, right? So, but the reality is, is a lot of these guys did not come out of a an ag program they don't did, really understand farming right so did any of them growers. um I, I think you know um i don't know so i, I think some of them <laughs> may have right so I, I know i know guys who have gone back and tried to learn it right so absolutely um, i know, you know so, plenty of those guys right 
And so, and so you got to give them credit, right? So, so to, to understand that, Hey, there's more to this than I know. And let me go back and learn the, the real deal. Right. So, and ironically, it's those guys who have gone back and learned that now start to think more like farmers and start to embrace these more advanced techniques. Right. So, you know, one of the things that we do is we build a lot of these tools for genetic analysis and, and, and for breeding, you know, like marker assisted breeding. It's, it's the thing that you do in plants and animals, right? So, I mean, they even use marker assisted breeding for, for cattle, for Christ's sake, right? So, um, you know, so I, I think what I found most interesting when I started in the industry was, is that everybody was like, oh, no, dude, you're, you're, you're the man. You're just trying to steal everything. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, first of all, I've grown weed for years. So I, I, I have, in fact, I do know, in fact, what I'm talking about. Not only have I grown weed for years, but uh, I've bred. I have, you know, many of my own varieties. And hey, guess what? It's all supported by science. And the stuff that I, that I, I take my stuff and I analyze it with my tools and I get more information, right? So, so it is about, you know, becoming more efficient, becoming, you know, you know, especially with the price of cannabis now, right? Where you're not getting $2,000 a pound anymore. You're lucky if you're getting 500 to $800 a pound. Well, so now you can't afford to do a thousand seed pheno hunt and just do it at random, right? You got to be able to hone in on seed populations, find the things that are going to make money or to be interesting or to be unique. Because right now, if everybody's got gelato and everybody's got wedding cake, everybody's got the same shit, right? How do you distinguish yourself? What's different? Right. So and so now it's time to start to think about this industry more like the industry. Right. Like and not just like a bunch of guys who have really good weed. So. Hmm. That's interesting. So I want to go back a little bit to the different growing regions that you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. I know you said you've done 25 different areas. Yep. Just in the U.S. Can you share some of the findings you have and like are there going to be like SOPs that you're going to or have you created for other growers to use for those regions? Like how do people prepare? Um, that's a great question. So no, so, um, so yes and no. So, so the SOPs that we developed were part of our, um, you know, when, when we were uh, slinging our hemp seed, um, uh, we spent a lot of time understanding how our different varieties performed in different areas. Right. So, um, <clears throat> Another another example that I think is is all too uh, well known is people buy seed from a producer, let's say in Oregon, or they buy a seed from a producer, you know, in California, and that producer has never tried that seed anywhere outside of their own backyard, but they're selling it all over the United States. Well, suddenly you put that seed in South America, or you see, so put that seed in New York or Virginia. Uh, or Wisconsin, and suddenly the seed's not doing very well. Suddenly it starts to herm, or the yield's really crappy, or it you know flowers too early, and that's because you know people understand how it does in their yard. And look, dude, look at what I get in my backyard. But unless you have taken the the more traditional big ag approach and done field trials in a lot of different areas with different environments, you don't know how that performs. So you're selling an uncharacterized seed to somebody. And, and, and telling them it's going to work great for them, right? So that's not how successful, you know, agriculture works, right? There's a reason why you see when you fly over the United States, all those little circles or squares and remote parts of every state, right? Because that's where 
Syngenta, Monsanto, those places are doing field trial for their crops so they can understand, okay, in this area where we know we have this environment with this kind of soil, this kind of daylight and sun, this is what we get from that plot of land with that with those varieties, right? And so that's the approach that we took because that's the only way to be able to, to sell seed that you know is going to do well for a customer that you're taking their money from, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we 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 had a we, we even had a, a one of our locations was even in Hawaii. So I think we were the first people to do a field trial with cannabis, you know, with CBD cannabis in in, um, in Hawaii, right? So, and when I say a field trial, that means you know that we were, were not we weren't a local grower you know, growing our local variety, right? We, we literally had partners in, in uh, a bunch of different states. And, you know, we had, you know, in some places we were trying 12, 12 different varieties in one, in one uh, person's, you know, farm, you know, where we'd have a couple hundred plants or sometimes it was as little as 25 or 50 plants, depending on our seed lot, um, you know, but, but to be able to understand, you know, and to have, agronomists go to those farms to take notes right so because it doesn't matter if you miss the entire season you just go for the harvest right when did it flower right you know what kind of stress did it have upon flowering right you know did did it did it did it do well in drought did it do well in high temperature did it do well you know when 45 mile an hour winds we we, we actually had a place in in Burtness, virginia um associated with riley smile um where we had a hurricane come and we had we had 500 plants lodged over at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> oh my gosh! Right, um, but but when they went back and they tried to you know to, to to pick some of them up, some of them broke. They you know some but some of them we ended up with one of our varieties which was just gangbusters. It didn't care. It it, it it didn't care whether they put it back up or they left it at 45 degrees. It found a way. It and, and it, but it was like one variety that was super hardy. And that variety became a breeding stock parent for yeah, us because right. it was super South hardy. Breeding right? stock. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and so, so, so that's how you improve the breed, right? So that, that's how you traditionally do agriculture, and that's how how we need to do cannabis too, if we want it to be a taken it seriously, so that people can trust the seed and they don't throw seed out there and then they end up with a, an abject failure because that's what had, and that's what left a bad taste in everybody's mouth for a few years in the CBD industry. It was be exactly because of that. So, so, so let, let me ask you this. Um, since cannabis uh, has to reinvent the wheel when it comes to literally every single, single thing that is being done, <laughs> is, is there a decent way, a set of SOPs or whatever that could be given out to cannabis cultivators or... Um, even breeders, so that they could gather the requisite field trial data that could then be sent off to a group of agronomists or somebody like that, and uh, and you know build out this sort of understanding and data set um, in in a decentralized way, the way we've done everything else in cannabis. Well. So I think the problem with that is, is that in order for, for any one cultivator to, to use that effectively, they have to do cross comparison, right? So they have to, in the same year, have enough seed or clones out in enough different places. And you actually have to go around and find the right places, right? So you have to be 
you know, above 50 degrees, you know, latitude so that you can get the northern climbs. You have to believe below 20, like down in Alabama, whatever, so that you can get the southern climb. You got to have something in the Midwest. Then you have to look at soil types, right? So, or desert, you know, wet, loam, uh, sandy, right? Clay, right? So, so mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, looking at that. That's why we ended up with 22 locations in, uh, in like, um, I think we did. So I think it was 14 different states and we had 22 locations in 14 different states. And, and, and basically we picked states, you know, Colorado, which gave us arid and, and, you know, and, and loamy soil in one spot and kind of arid and clay soil in another spot. Right. Then we had stuff in Florida. We had stuff in Virginia. We had stuff in um, Oxnard, California, which was in the year we did it in Oxnard, boy, boy, oh boy. It was, it was straight up desert. It was like, for three weeks straight, it was 105 degrees, right? And, and the things looked all crispy and they looked horrible, and but they recovered and they came back. And, and you know, and some of the varieties didn't go hot because of that stress and some of them did, right? So, and so we, you know, you, you have to have a, a lot of seed um, or clone. You have to really commit to it because without being able to do enough different places and, and get that varied data so that you can see the obvious differences, right? So you have five varieties. Which one flowered within a week of putting it in the soil because it didn't belong in that in that photo period, right? So it, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that goes into it, right? Um, you know, that's, you, I, you that's pretty frustrating. I'm, I'm laughing because it's not my problem, but like but it's that, that would be very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. so... <laughs> Um, you know, and, and it, it became even worse because at one point, you know, uh, before we had developed our own, you know, CBG line, right. In fact, we're still working on developing our own CBG line. Um, you know, we were, we were brokering other people's CBG lines and, and, and all we had to go on was the data that they had done. And one of them was pure CBG, which was from Switzerland or wherever those guys are. Uh, and then the other one was Panakia, which was from Spain. Mm -hmm. Right. And the one, the Panakia did great in the south did horrible in the north it went like, literally went into flower immediately right when you put it in the ground um and then and then pure cbg did well better in the northern climbs than in the southern climbs right so 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 and, and but surprise, yeah but, surprise right but but you know but we had gotten these seeds right and and at the time you know we 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 didn't have time to do the field trial we we got the license, we got the seed, and we put it out there because we wanted CBG, right? Oh boy, we never did that again because <laughs> because we ended up having to deal with all the problems, right? Mm -hmm. So like the people who got who you know, and we tried to mitigate it by selling people half and half, pure CBG and panakia, just to kind of you know to to, to cover all the bases, right? I so <laughs> right, and and so um, you know, we ended up with some some people who were very happy and some people who were very unhappy with that seed. And, and the people who were very unhappy refused to buy it the year afterwards, right? Or, or, or in, in fact, some of them didn't even come back to us as, as clients at all, right? Even though we told them, hey, this is somebody else's seed and da da da, right? So, um, so field trials are a complicated thing. They're not cheap. You have to end up doing all the testing afterwards. You got to test for the potency and the terpenes and da da da, da afterwards from all the different stuff. From, and the only way to figure out what happened in all the different environments is to do all of that testing and then compare all that data, right? 
because now, but because at least now, at least with clones, right, they're genetically identical. But with seed populations, it's the same distribution of seed, right? Because you you get a seed population, and and you're going to have the same, you know, you're going to take random, and and you're going to have random distribution. And so, you know, when you when you work with seed populations, you you put, you know, you have to do enough seed in that population to make sure you get a good distribution analysis of that population. So, you know, you you want to be looking at fifty to one hundred, if not more, two hundred, three hundred seed of each population together so that you understand, you know, the, the, the more inbred the population, the, the fewer you need, right? But if you're doing with an F1, right, you, wow. you could have 20 or 20 or more different varieties. So in order to make sure you've, you've got that entire breadth of seed population, you have to do a larger, a, a larger, um, uh, you know, evaluation, right? So, so it, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, right? And, and, and the, I'd say the only way for cultivators to to get into that is to embrace the idea of what agriculture means and and how big ag goes about perfecting varieties for sale. Now, here's an interesting thing. The corn that you buy to grow in Georgia is not the same corn you buy for Oklahoma, right? Because it, it may be called the same thing, but they are slight genetic differences because they have perfected the line for south different than the sound, the line for the mid and the line for north. There are genetic differences, even though they're called the same thing. They're called the same thing because they have the same major trait. They, they perform the same major function. They give you the same type of kernel, the same sugar content, whatever it is, right? But because it's got some different agronomic background stuff so that it does better, right? And, and that's the way the cannabis industry doesn't think yet and needs to, right? So so I have a question that might be kind of silly, but so you've done these studies with hemp seeds is, and I know it's the same plant, but if you were doing it, like, let's say you're a cannabis grower, you don't consider yourself a hemp grower. Are you allowed to send your cannabis seeds across state lines or is that still federally illegal? Well, uh, thanks, thanks to the DEA back in April of 2022, all, all cannabis seeds are now considered hemp. Oh, okay. Because the seed itself is not above 0.3. So technically, according to the definition of hemp, a, a cannabis seed is hemp because it is below 0.3%. Now, the outcome of that cannabis seed can no, will no longer be considered hemp if it goes above 0.3. But the hemp, but, but it is now legal to sell cannabis seed across state lines. Yes. Um, and I would... I would believe it's fair to extrapolate that out and say clones as well. Because uh, the... no. No, 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 no. Really? No. So, so so if you clone a plant if you clone from a mother plant that's got over one percent THC in it, you will find that your clones have one percent THC in it. Really? Yes, clone. So the older the plant gets, the more so yes, the majority of cannabinoids are accumulated in trichomes right but remember you have all sorts of trichomes not just glandular you know the glandular trichomes right so you have you know the um, sessile ones as well yeah, right you have you know the little uh, i forget all the names right, right now i used to remember right the but, ones we liked are the stalked glandular kind right but you but also have the little bulbous ones right right which have those no are the unstalked, right? Those are the glandular ones that are not stalked and then right. you've got the sessile ones that are sort of like 
semicircles. <laughs> They're not right, and, and, and then you, and then you have the the, the, the systolistic hairs also, which also yeah. have right. So, and so, but but what you'll find is that you know once you start to clone, right, because you you have um, you you you've got a um, a plant that's already hit a certain hit a certain level of maturation, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you take a clone off, it doesn't doesn't the clone doesn't go back in time, right? The clone starts from where uh-huh. it is, right? So, so, so I, that was a surprise to me as well. But we figured that out a long time ago with Steep Hill, where we had a plant that uh, we took a clone, the, a clone tested it four percent THC. I was like, say what? <laughs> okay then. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so I would be careful with clones, but seed is is always is always according to at least according to the DEA now is legal. So, that's a great tip. For, um, okay, so I I feel like a lot of our conversation has been about what's best for growing cannabis, like true agriculture. Outdoor, outdoors. No, no, no. Uh, indoors even, right? So you can grow seed indoor as well, right? There's, there's no reason not to. to right? cer- certainly, but my question or my my assertion is coming from how much, how important are the field trials really if you're growing indoors and controlling your environment much, much tighter than than a- ambient. That's a great question, but and so. Um, you still need to do some sort of trialing, right? Because you still need to find the optimized growing regime, yep. nutrient regime, light regime, right? So different plants will respond to different lights. Some will, you know, depending on where they come from, where they come from. So now, so now you go back further, right? And you start to look at what, what's the original lineage of the plant? Is it mm-hmm. more quote unquote equatorial or is it more, you know, Northern latitude, right? So the typical indica versus sativa, you know, old school names, right? So, um, and so each of those are going to have something, right? When I meant something, right? So, (laughs) and each of those are going to have their own particular type of requirements, right? So the type of light, the intensity of light, um, you know, the, 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 the way you water it, how much water does it really need? Right. So, and what, what nutrient regime does it, does it need? You know, so, 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 so trialing is is a thing, right? It, it is a thing for all agriculture, whether you grow indoor or outdoor, right? Mm. But some things are less important. Obviously, photo period, right? So you're going to veg, and then you're going to flip to twelve, twelve, and da da da. But ironically, some plants don't like a hard flip, right? So we've seen in in my in in our hands as well in our own breeding, we've seen plants that never hermed outdoors, not once ever, but would herm all the time on a hard twelve, twelve flip indoors. Why is that? Well, because in outdoors, it's not a hard 12-12 flip. It's a ever. gradual, ever, right? It's a ever. gradual progression, right? So so what did we have to do? We had to go out and spend all sorts of ridiculous money on sophisticated light controllers so that we can now program a gradual progression, right? So to be able to understand that. So if you're doing a hard 12-12 flip and you've never had that problem, well, great. Um, but... The question then becomes is, is, you know, did you just get lucky or does that problem show up later after you've been cloning that plant for a year or two years or three years? And now when the plant gets old and tired and it's no longer fresh and vigorous, does it start to show up some of these, these hidden, these hidden problems, right? So now, 
and 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 I have you know a friend of mine called me the other day and said, dude, I have a plant that I've been growing for over a year and, and it's never happened before, but it, like it, it's throwing herms now. I'm like, well, what happened? Did you, what did you change? Nothing, dude. I didn't do anything different. And, and there were other plants in the same room that didn't do it. I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but <laughs> if it's old, maybe it's just telling you it's tired, right? It's li- living organisms, you know. Right, so, right, so, um, but yeah, but, but you know, so so it is important to do some sort of trialing and understanding, right? And and so that means, okay, let's try different, you know, indoor different light spectrum. Let's try, you know, different nutrient regimes, different feeding cycles, et cetera, et cetera, right? So different temperatures, right? So maybe maybe that plant that came from equatorial region doesn't like your 72 degrees because it's, it's a little chilly. And that's why you see purple on the stems because even though 72 degrees is great for some plants, it came from a plant where it was normally 88 to 92, right? So, you know, so, and, and, and we just don't know because we have done almost no real study on this plant other than underground right so you know in in you know people's basements or 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 you know yeah and and even even the light spectrum that we're using is essentially um completely untested because we went from hps's and metal halides to to leds and like we're in like the third generation of leds in the last six years maybe like the the pace that the technology is changing uh do, it doesn't match the pace at which we can even do the research right no that, that's a good point um but you know what's interesting is, is that um what i have you know I, i'm not an expert on light technology but i do follow the the kind of trends and what you're seeing now is that people are starting to understand hey wait a second it's not just about the visible light you know uh, you know, or or these particular the visible spectrum, right? You need mm-hmm. UV light now. So now you're starting to see these, you know, these high tech LEDs that have some of them are, are UVA, some of them are UVB, some of them are more more red shifted, some of them are more blue shifted, right? And they're, they're all combined into these really high dollar two thousand dollar a unit lights, right? Yep. Um, that you know that are starting to, to to look at these things in a more systematic scientific way right and, and it's absolutely necessary right because you know you get all sorts of really powerful complete light from the sun and you know my understanding is that until we went to leds and engineered the light spectrum you know halides didn't give you the whole thing you know um the, you know Sodiums, either. sodiums, yeah, right. So, so you, 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 you were. It was always a trade-off of something, right? So, um, yeah. It's uh, and, and I think that's the one of the biggest things is is then once you figure it out, is selling it to cannabis cultivators who almost every single one of them are sure they know the best. So, <laughs> I, without question. So let's talk about sustainability from soil to lighting to water intake. What, what does the industry look like now? Is that sustainable moving forwards or do you think that we'll need to see regulations focused on sustainability practices? Um, 
So let me ask, answer the first question, the, the last question first. And the, the answer to that is an emphatic yes, right? Because we already know, right, just agriculture in general is, is kind of a wasteful and environmentally unfriendly, at least the way we do farming in the United States, right? So, yes. um, so you know, the Alagaga aquifer is, is almost dry because people keep sucking the water out to irrigate crop plants in the Midwest and, and so on and so forth, right? So, um, you know, the, the thing that I, that I thought was the coolest about the cannabis industry was because we tend to start from the hippie phase, right? So we, 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 we do have that kind of, you know, that love of earth background as, as you know, to the, to the, to the movement. Um, the, the the rapidity at which regenerable growing and regenerable agriculture has, has come in. You got the guys who build the big fish koi ponds and they're using the water from their koi ponds to irrigate. It's all closed loop system, goes back, gets filtered, da, da, da. I think absolutely we need to see more investment in that kind of stuff in the industry because cannabis farming is by and large really toxic right it, it it really is uses a lot of water cannabis is the fastest growing plant needs a lot of irrigation the hotter the area the more the water um in order to get those big massive plants and beautiful buds it needs a lot of nutrient right so so now you know when you see these huge you know runs of you know a thousand plants in in four rows of 250 you know that soil is going to get stripped fast unless mm. you're providing topical nutrient right so um, or unless you're, you have a large enough piece of land that you can do crop rotation, and then you, the, the like the old the way the farmers tried to, to save their soil back in the day when they realized that strip farming was causing them huge problems, right? So, um, so I think you know there does need to be some more investigation into that. I think you know um, energy consumption is a thing, right? And the sooner we can get this legal, and the sooner we can go to outdoor growing, and the sooner we can we can we can get to uh, sustainable agriculture based on inbred seed, I think, you know, is going to be better because now if you have inbred seed that's been developed for different regions, you can actually start to build plants that do well in specific, you know, areas without a lot of exogenous input, right? So you can build plants that are drought tolerant or ready to build, to go into drought areas so that you don't have to waste a lot of water, right? So, um, and so, you know, I, I think if we don't change things, we will uh, find a lot of people turning against us because, you know, already the water usage and stuff like that is 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 being severely looked at in places like California and other places, right? So, and imagine where it where there, there's going to be less water, right? So we have very little water, you know, ourselves, right? But you go to places like Oklahoma and you know Arkansas and those places where you know a lot of the water goes to, to feed the nation, right? So are those farmers there going to suddenly want their water rights used for cannabis, right? So I, I think a lot has to be looked at and a lot has to change for us to be able to to fit in with society, right? I, I, I think we really do need to take a look at that seriously. So, but because right now, cannabis agriculture is not necessarily in the most sustainable of, of matters, right? So, mm-hmm. Where do you hope to see the industry grow to in the next five to 10 years? Or like, what changes do you want to see? So first thing, 
ideally it's not scheduled, right? Because any schedule hurts us. Yeah. Um, any schedule puts us in the direct path of the pharmaceutical companies and, and takes it away from the people and the ability to, to use it themselves and, 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 and to find their own path with it. Um, I, it go ahead. It's, it's tough too, right? Because the pharmaceutical companies don't really want to work with the plant at all. Right. The, the plant is this polypharmacy of yeah. of craziness and chaos. And that is not the pharmaceutical model. So, nope, nope. And it'll be very hard for them, you know, uh, to it'll be very hard for them to 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 get anything seriously going. You know, Epidiolex is, is interesting. Right. So it's it's basically an alcohol tincture of a cannabis variety um, and you know, with a few things added in. Right. So, but it, it's, um, and it only exists because it is for, it's one of these orphan drugs for one of these, uh, intractable conditions that affects children. Hey, right. you know, there's nothing more powerful than, than the lobbying arm of the, the mother, right. uh, and, and if it weren't for that, if it weren't for the the heartstrings being pulled, I'm sure pharma would have pushed even harder to keep it out, right? So, yeah. uh, so, um, so you know, I think a deschedule completely is absolutely necessary. Um, but at the same time, I think there absolutely has to be some resolution with the FDA, right? So here, here's the problem. Sitting on this US, US CFCR organization, I've noticed something that really, really kind of threw me for a loop. One of the biggest problems that the cannabis industry has right now with getting stuff into the FDA is in fact the cannabis industry, right? So having had many talks with the FDA now through this organization, the FDA is perfectly happy to have cannabis in, in their scheduling. In, in, in their, you know, it kind of under their purview, right? And they've offered two ways. You can either be a natural product, and these are the hoops you have to jump through, but you can't make any claims, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can be a pharmaceutical, and these are the hoops that you have to jump through, and you can make medical claims. Well, the cannabis industry has firmly rejected both and said, we want our own door where we don't have to do that level of stuff. We can make claims, but we get more than that that door, right? That's not how it works, right? The cannabis industry is going to have to realize that if they want to play this game, they're going to have to play the way the, the rules are set up. They're not going to get special rules, right? And so that was, I mean, it, 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 it pained me to come to that realization, but, you know, so uh, I, I think... You know, there has to be some resolution between the industry and and the regulatory agencies so that they are both talking the same language and playing from the same set of rules. And I think then that will help everything go better. Right. So there is a way that you can have cannabis as an adult use cannabis as a uh, as a nutraceutical or, or as a or as a food product and then cannabis as a drug. Right. They can all peacefully coexist. Right under specific sets of circumstances, right? So let, so let, let me ask you a follow-up around that bit because um, my understanding, which is certainly could be flawed, is that if a compound is approved as a scheduled drug, then it is no longer available through the nutraceutical pathway. 
Yes, except so CBD. So this is the, the, the dilemma that the FDA is dealing with right now because there it, it has existed as a as a supplement and, and as a natural product for so long. People have used it. There's so much information about it, right? Right. I mean, tobacco and alcohol and caffeine aren't really bound by these FDA rules. Well, and 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 therein lies the rub. Remember earlier I said yeah. cannabis is being handled completely differently than everything else, right? And yeah. there you go. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and so I think, um, you know, the 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 issue becomes right that um, it's it, it's hard to fathom people making medical claims without doing the the work that has to go into being able to support medical claims right so, agreed right and and so and so we've been our own worst enemy oh CBD will give we'll do this we'll, but there's no <laughs> there's nothing that supports that right you know and and I, I took a lot of flack a couple of years back when remember the CBD will cure COVID craze right and so as it turns out after the data came out those people who took cbd did suffer less from covid than those who didn't right but at the beginning when people were saying cbd will cure covid right there was no data there was nothing at all nothing right and and so right there was there was some cancerous lung cells in a petri dish right (laughs) Right? and so you know and, and so my stance was you know as a scientist and, and as somebody who was asked to comment on it because of my position in the industry, I was like, no, there is no evidence. You can't make those claims. And so I, and, and, but then I went on to say, but yes, but if you look at, you know, the SARS virus in 20, 20, uh, 2007, 2013, we knew that there were terpenes that would have killed the original SARS virus dead in its tracks. Right. Like, yep. so literally we could have had a, a, a plant-based drug that we knew to be effective against SARS back in the early 2000s, but we chose not to do it because why? Pharmaceutical companies couldn't make a billion dollars off of it because it was a plant-based medicine. It was a terpene, right? So um, so I, I, I pointed at the research. Look, there's good evidence that it may be in fact helpful, that terpenes may in fact be a, a solution here, but until the work is done, you can't make those claims, right? Because that's how it works, right? So, um, and so I took a lot of flack. I had a bunch of people from all over the industry just give me all sorts of shit. And then after when CBD was proven to help, they came after me again saying, see, you were wrong. I'm like, no. I'm like, no, I was right. I was like, I, I said we had to wait till we had yeah. data. And here's the fucking data. Knock yourself out. You you mean like like a scientist, you yeah. did not give an absolute answer. Well, because there was because without yeah. data you can't get yeah. an absolute yeah. answer, right? So no, I support that entirely. Yeah. You have been you, throwing around the word cure. I feel like you shouldn't be yeah. doing that. Like there, mm. there's symptom relief, and you know people mm. are having better outcomes, but it's not a cure, right? Sure, yeah. and and I mean I'm not uh, I'm probably going to put a target on my back here, but I mean like just be just because we have a feeling doesn't mean we can go out there swinging the flag around yeah. saying this is what's going to happen yeah. like it's now, it, now, now but but here's the flip side of that right so and this is where i feel that my position on uscfcr that or my job at uscfcr is 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 to be the guy banging that drum right but, but hey but wait a second right pliny the elder in 79 ad guys before him there are treatises from ancient Egypt, from ancient China, where they have used cannabis as a medicine, and it's documented. 
And there's yes. and, and so so for the FDA and for doctors to ignore that shit is bullshit, right? So agreed. And 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 so so there has to be a meeting of the minds, right? So we have to be able to 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 go and and to go back and say, look, these people. For, for, for Christ's sake, Queen Victoria's court physician, Jay, whatever, or something, Reynolds, right? Published in the, the journal of, of uh, the British Journal of, of Medicine back in 1840 something or other, right? That there was no finer, no finer medicine for women's menstrual problems, you know, menses problems than a tincture of Indian hemp, period. End of story, right? And so... So it, it has been studied, it's been administered and observed, right? And so, yes, it hasn't been done at the quote-unquote clinical trial level that we do things today, right? But that doesn't mean that that observation and, the, and that data was not worthwhile, right? And so that's, that's the arrogance of modern medicine right now, right? To say, oh, we didn't do it, we're not going to look at it. Well, that's stupid, right? So because, because that, what you're saying is that no, the, the father of, pharma, of pharmacy, Pliny the Elder. <laughs> so, like, he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. Okay, sure, no problem. Whatever. So, so yeah. So, uh, in five to ten years from now, I would like to see descheduled. I would like to see the FDA come to terms with the fact that there is a ton of data out there on previous use, and to use that as a, as a springboard for understanding what we can do with this plant. Um, I would like to see sustainable ag- agriculture, and I would like to see people understand that that this plant is is miraculous and it makes so many compounds and you know um you know the big joke is oh another thing that cannabis cures well you know what it's it's the it's the it's time to understand that this plant has more biologically active compounds than almost any other plant we've ever studied in the history of mankind and we should take advantage of it the top 25 drugs in the in the in the, the top twenty five prescribed drugs today, all had plant origins. All of them. Absolutely, and, so, and, and not even prescriptions too, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that salicylic acid tab, the aspirin, the, <laughs> the, the aspirin that everybody takes, yeah. like yeah. right? That's yeah. plant derived. Yeah. So. So, you know, so, so, so that's, you know, and, and I hope that, you know, and an understanding of the plant so that we can start to inbreed, we can start to understand that we can, you know, get stabilized varieties, that we can, we can become more efficient, we can become uh, both, both from a, a land use and from a monetary perspective, right? So seeds are way cheaper than clones. The yes. end of story, right? So, yes. so we can, we can, people can make higher margins, right? They can reduce less waste because you don't have to have big clone factories, right? Like, and you know, I, I can get 2,000 or more seeds from a single plant, right? So, right, me, right and they, they, they all fit in this mug. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, so, so, so now, you know, if people are breeding to produce seed, to sell the seed right now, you know, you've, you've reduced the footprint. You've reduced the electrical usage because you don't have to have all these clone farms and so, you know, I mean, so I, I'd like to see us grow up in the next five to 10 years is what I'd like to see. So, uh, yeah. it, it, it's a beautiful vision. Uh, I, I support every aspect of what you just said, and I'd <laughs> love to see it too. Uh, unfortunately, I see cannabis as both the fastest and slowest moving uh, 
industry uh, you could think of. So that's a great, that's a great, answer. <laughs> yeah. that's very true. Yeah. I mean, everything's different from yesterday, but we still have all the same problems from the last 80 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I feel like this has been a great conversation. Um, and it leaves me with so many more questions, which is the, the hallmark of a great conversation. Um, I, before we, we wrap it up for the day, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add Reggie, uh, you know, parting advice or, you know, shameless plugs, whatever Um. you'd like. So, yeah, so uh, my group just released a paper on the cannab- evolution of the cannabinoid synthesis. Uh, it's, a, it's available on BioArchive right now. It's called um, the uh, Evolution, Expansion, and Characterization, Characterization of the Cannabinoid Synthase Family in Cannabis Sativa. Um, and um, uh, I think people will be interested to see uh, what comes out of that. Um, it's... Uh, very interesting. So, you know, if you cannabis genes come from a class of genes called the berberine bridge genes, uh, they are typically associated with things like alkaloids, caffeine, opium, that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out that the cannabinoids are a specialized class of berberine bridge genes. And, and so we trace the evolution through ancestors like hops and um, parasponia and, and, and trema. Um, which are, you know, uh, full-on trees in the same, uh, the same order of, of, of plants. Um, and it's interesting to see how the class of cannabinoid synthesis came from one of the clades of their berberine bridge genes so we can follow the evolution. And, and, and it kind of keys us into why it makes the, the, the compounds that it makes. Um, and um, I think I'm going to, uh, oh, we also released recently a, uh, a methods paper in Journal of Cannabis Research, I think it was Journal of Cannabis Research, um, um, on high throughput methods for sex testing. So that was nice. our contribution to the industry so that people can take a look at how to better get a handle on true Y chromosome bearing plants. And, and that will, and I will leave with that. That's my, my noid factoid, which is for those of you who don't know, there are no true females in cannabis. You're either a male or a hermaphrodite. And that's evidenced by the fact that you can reverse a female and make it make a pollen flower, right? So, so you're you're either a male or a hermaphrodite, and that's what I'm going to end on. So, awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today, Dr. Godino. We appreciate all of your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs>